Open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to begin a little journey that probably will take a, a couple of weeks. And we're still we're laying a foundation for the direction of the church where we're going to begin to go this year. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book because it's, it's filled with, it's, it's one of my favorite books. It's a letter addressed, many scholars believe it's the Apostle Paul, others claim it's not the Apostle Paul, and whether it was Paul or somebody else, it doesn't matter because what matters is the Holy Spirit inspired it. It's God speaking to us. And it was addressed to Jewish converts, Jewish Christians, that in the first century's persecution had, had fled for their lives into, into basically Asia Minor, which is where Paul went and started his, the first churches that he started. And what happened is because they were separated from the mother church uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, they began to, to become susceptible to other teachings, strange teachings coming in. And one of the things that was always going on when the Apostle Paul, you can see it as you read his writings, is there was constant pressure against him to go back and conform to the, the, the old law under Judaism, the practices, the, the sacrifices and the, and the practices that they had developed uh, as part of fulfilling the law, as part of the law. And, and there was a, there was a, uh, a council held, which is in Acts chapter 15, where the Spirit of God directed James, the head of the church there, that, that, which was critical to the history of the church, because what it meant was that, from, that, that the Christians did not have to observe the practices under the law, which is significant because what that means is God was saying Christianity is a new thing. It is the fulfillment of the covenant promises that God made to the Jews, but it's not included under the Judaism. It is something new. In fact, the process is the other way around. Well, there was pressure. There were groups of people known as Judaizers, and the name comes from the fact that they would come into, sin, come into churches, which didn't meet in buildings like this. They met in people's houses. They would come in, and they would try to convince these Christians that in order to be saved, you had to keep the law of Moses plus worship Christ. And that's just the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. But we know that now in part because we have this letter and we have other writings of the Apostle Paul. And so I give you that background because what the letter of Hebrews is intended to do is a comparison of things that were practiced under the law, things that these Judaizers were teaching with Christ. And so it starts in the first chapter comparing angels with Christ. And then it goes on and compares the high priest under the Old Testament uh, worship with Christ. And it goes on down the line. I'm just giving you that by way of background because the, this letter was written in response to a pressure put on these Jewish believers to revert back to the law, to putting their trust in how faithful they were, to putting their trust in what they ate or didn't eat, to putting their trust in what they did or didn't do instead of putting their trust in Christ. So it's important to have that background to this letter. We're not going to dwell a lot on that, but we're, we're going to talk about a specific aspect of this. So we're going to jump a little bit from one chapter to the other, but just we're going to start in chapter 1 and just verse 1, 1 through 4. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So what he's saying here is God has spoken to his people. He spoke to his people in the past. He spoke to the, the fathers. The fathers were their forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 
the patriarchs, the leaders, through Moses. God had spoken to his people through the prophets. So the first thing we see here is God speaks to people. God is a God who communicates. He's not silent sitting up in the heavens as the deists believe, just hoping you figure it out or not even caring whether we figure it out. God speaks to us. In that book you have in your lap or that electronic device that contains the Bible or translations of the Bible, that is God speaking to us. It's alive. It's unlike any other book. I have books that I've read a number of times and after a while you read a book two or three times it's like, yeah, I know what it's going to say. But this book, I mean, I've been walking with the Lord for over 33 years. Every time I pick it up, there's something new I see, something from a different angle, things I see because it speaks to me. Why? Because it's alive. It's a living word. God breathed word to you every time you open it. Do you realize the opportunity that is? The God of eternity who knows everything wants to talk with you communicate. And you know, I find in my life, and I suspect probably a lot of times in your life, we do most of the talking. There's an old saying, and I'm sure it's true, I don't know who it was, but an old gospel preacher years ago, on his face in the front of his pastor, in front of his church, not in during a service, but you know, just praying during the week, laying before God, telling God this and telling God this, and all of a sudden it dawned on him, wait a minute, here lies a fool who knows nothing doing all the talking to a God who knows everything. And I've been that fool at times. (laughs) That means we need to learn to listen to what God's saying. And it's wonderful to make our requests known. It's good to pour your heart out before God. But there's times we just need to open our hearts and our minds for God to speak to us. And we see from these verses that God has been speaking to his people from the beginning. And in the beginning, it says God spoke to his people through the prophets. So he used the prophets to speak to his people. All right. Verse 2. God has in these last days spoken to us by or through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the world. So God is now not just speaking through prophets, men inspired by, his God, by God, but he has sent his Son to speak to us through his Son. We learned over the last few weeks when we talked about the significance of Christmas, and we went back into the Gospel of John in the beginning, and we saw that John's perspective was from heaven, about the birth of Christ. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we talked about the fact that when with God the Creator, God the Communicator, was the Word, the full expression of who the Father is. We're going to see that in the next verse. So God was expressing Himself through the Son. Why? Look at the next verse. Verse 3. Being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. The word brightness there in the New King James is a word, is an, comes from the Greek word, means an outshining. An outshining. Shining outwardly from the inside. Now it's wonderful when you have a nice clear night and you've got a beautiful full moon up there. 
Isn't that nice? It just, it, it just lights up your front yard and you get in the night, you know, and it's just, it almost looks sometimes as if it's daytime. Th- that moon can be so bright. But the, all the light that comes from that moon, or none of the light that comes from that moon, comes out of the moon. It's reflected light. The source of the light that's coming from the moon is the sun. That's why we have different phases to the moon. Because if the light came out of the moon, we'd have a full moon all the time. But the earth gets in between the light, the light that's coming from the sun and the moon that reflects it and casts a shadow. So it's not like half the moon disappears. That's a shadow that only leaves the part that you can see. Why? Because there's nothing in the moon that can generate the light. That's reflected light. This word does not mean reflected light. This means an outshining. The source comes from within. So God is communicating. He did through the prophets to our spiritual fathers, but now God's communicating to us through the Son. And what the Son is, is He is the outshining of His Father. The Father has been deposited in Him, and He's shining it out to us. Goes on. He is the outshining of His Father, of His glory, and the express or the exact image of His person. So what this is saying is God communicated Himself in the old days through the prophets. And by that, we could only see little glimpses. You read through Isaiah, and you see glimpses of who God is, what God is like. You see, God is a God who talks to His people. Then He said, you've made idols of stone and of wood, but they have eyes that don't see. They have ears that don't hear. And they have hands that can't reach out and help you. But I am the true and the living God. I have eyes that can see where you are, what you're going through. I have ears that can hear your cry. And I have uh, hands that can reach out and rescue. In fact, I'm holding you in the right hand of my righteousness. And then this same God through Isaiah and the other prophets says, I look around up here and I don't see any other gods. I'm it. And then God communicates to them His correction through the prophets. But now, Hebrews tells us, now we're in a different age. We're in an age where God's communicated us much more accurately. Because He took the Word, the full expression of who He is. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, First John or John 1.14. That's what we've just celebrated. Christmas is the Word of God, the full expression of who He is coming in flesh and dwelling among us. And the rest of that verse 14 says, and we beheld. What's that mean? We saw. His glory. The glory of the only begotten of His Father. We saw Him, full of grace and truth. We began to see what God was like, because God took on flesh, and we could see Him, and we could hear Him. In John 14, as Jesus is meeting with his disciples for the last time, he says to them, Philip comes and says, he's talking about the Father. He says, oh, Master, show us the Father. And Jesus says, how long have you been with me? You've been walking around with me. You've been listening to me for over these three years. Don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So Hebrews is telling us that God is now communicated to us and continues to communicate us through His Son, who is the outshining, the outflowing of His glory and the express, the exact image of His person. So if you want to know what God's like, you just have to look at Jesus and see what Jesus is like. If you want to know God's will, you just have to look at what Jesus did because He only did what His Father told Him to do. He is the perfect expression of the will of God. If you want to know what His character was like, you just have to look at Jesus in the Gospels and see what His character was like because He came in part to display what the Father was like so we could know Him better, so we could see Him and touch Him and hear Him and know Him and have a personal relationship with Him because very few in the Old Testament could have a personal relationship with God. But through Christ, we can all have that personal relationship. Being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right right hand of majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, he He goes down and compares Him to the angels, Let's go to chapter 2, because it begins referring back to what we just read. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to these things which we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels, that means messengers. If God's word's been spoken to us in the past through His messengers, through prophets, prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which was first begun to be spoken by the Lord and has been confirmed to us by those who heard Him? So what he's saying is, the chapter 1, God speaks to us. In the old days He spoke through the prophets. Now He's spoken to us through His Son, who is higher than the angels. The angels are ministering servants of God, Jesus is His Son taken on flesh. And if in the Old Testament they didn't take he- pay heed to what was said and there were consequences, how much more when God speaks to us through His Son must we take heed and listen lest we drift away from what He said. So we know there's a possibility, in fact, this is a warning, that we could have heard things, we could have known things, and we can believe things, and if we're not aware of it and conscious, we can drift. Drifting is an important word here. Because drifting does not mean I was walking along, knowing right where I was going, and said, you know what, I don't want to go there anymore, I'm going to go over here. That's not drifting, that's walking away. That's intentional. That's, I choose not to go this way. I choose not to walk with him anymore. I'm going to walk this way. That's a choice. That's an act of my will. And if that's what it is, then you know you're doing that. You know, oh, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going here. That's an event where I make that choice, a knowing choice. But the word drift 
implies a slow process that I'm not aware of, and yet it's happening, slowly drifting away to going in a direction I don't want to go in, and I don't realize I'm going there, but because I'm drifting, I, it's happening, and I don't realize it until I discover I'm way off course. And so how do we avoid that? That's what he's telling us here. Take heed. Be aware. Not afraid. Be aware that because God has spoken to us through His Son, we need to take heed to what He says. Because when we stop paying attention to what He says, we start drifting away. Well, how do we make sure we're paying attention? By one of the most important ways is make sure that you on a very regular basis open that book by which God speaks to us and allow Him to say it to you over and over again. We're made in such a way that we forget. My wife and I have been married 47 years, and I still tell her every day I love her. And you ought to think, you know, by now she ought to know that, but that's not why I tell her that. She wants to hear it over and over again. Not because she's insecure in it, it just continues to solidify and strengthen that relationship. It keeps it fresh. And not just words, I've got to mean it. It's not just, well, she wants to hear this, she needs to hear it, or to get her off my back. No, it's got to come from my heart. And, but that's part of re- renews it every day, refreshes the knowledge of each other every day so that I, we don't drift away. See, another word for drifting away is taking for granted. When you've been married for a while or in any relationship for a while, it's very easy to begin to take somebody for granted because you know they're there. You know, they're, they're there because they made the commitment. We made vows to each other that we were going to, you know, through, through whatever came. The good, the bad, the rain, the snow, the sleet, you know, whatever comes, we're staking together through this. And it takes that kind of commitment. And then when you have a track record over the years of seeing that, that's wonderful. But the downside of it is you can begin to take that for granted. Well, she's always there. And he's always there. And although you may physically be together, the hearts can begin to drift away. It's interesting because the statistics I've read say that the most common years in a marriage for divorce are at seven years and at 21, 21 to 25, somewhere in there. Seven years I can understand because you can, almost, you can put up with almost anything for seven years. And I know it sounds funny, but that's the truth. Sometimes it takes a while to realize, whoa, 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 something's wrong here. But why 21 and 25? Somewhere in there. Because that's about the age when the kids have started to leave home. And now what was binding us together, we discover isn't there anymore. And they look at each other and say, I don't know you. What happened? They were physically together, but emotionally drifted. Never planned to say, hey, look, you know what? Let's just exist for the sake of the kids. But when they're gone, let's, you know, let's, let's split this up. They didn't plan that. They didn't get married planning. This is only good for 21 years. We get the kids going out. Then we can, you know, we've done our job. We've procured part of another generation. Then we're going to split. No, no. It was, oh, I love you forever, you know. And somewhere we drift, we drift apart. Why? 
It's interesting, Jesus talks about this in Revelation to one of the churches. He says, you've done so well. You've done so well. You just, you know, you've been faithful. You've not allowed false teaching in. You've had good teaching. But I have only one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've, 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 you've drifted away from me. Because the only call them is a call to the disciples to begin with and his call to you and me has only been, follow me. You follow me. I'll make you disciples of men, but you follow me. Our call as Christians is to follow him. That's it. It's that simple. And they were doing his things, but they'd stopped him following him. And they drifted away in their hearts from him, still doing good things for him. And he was pleased, but he says he was calling them back because they drifted, they drifted away. And he told them how to bring it back. He says, remember what you used to do. Remember the things that you used to do when you were in love with me and do those again. Start dating me again. The things you used to do when you first fell in love with me, just do those things again. And that will renew again. So we see this pattern of because we're human beings and we get even doing the things of God. And you know the people that are the most vulnerable to this? Our pastors and ministers, because we're doing God's work. And it's so easy to say, well, I'm doing God's work, I'm preaching God's word, or I'm, if you're a missionary, I'm out on the mission field, or I'm evangelist out preaching the word of God, and neglect our own relationship with Him. And just start drawing on the anointing and think that means everything's okay. But that's true of all of us. So take heed. God speaks to us speaks to us every day. Take heed lest you drift away. Lest you drift away. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels or messengers proved steadfast and every transgression of disobedience received a just reward, how much shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Now, drift away from what? It's important to know what it is we can be tempted to drift away from so that we can keep our eyes on it so we don't drift away from it. Well, obviously, drifting away from Him is the basic part of it. But the writer of Hebrews is focusing on one particular thing, and this is what we're going to get at over these few weeks. So just bear with me. This is not to scare us. It's to take heed. Because what we're, what we're susceptible to is exactly what he's talking about here. And then he goes and talks about man and that God, our future, that God has prepared for us that in the next age that the world will be subject to us. That we're being trained to rule and reign in the millennium. And he says, for a little while, we've been made lower than creation. But then at some point, it's going to be under us. And so, uh, Corinthians talks about this. At one point, I think it's in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, I think it's somewhere in there. He says, you know, wait a minute. 
you Christians are having a dispute with you Christians. I'm not pointing at any one of you. And so you go into a civil pagan court to decide that? You've already failed. He says, if you can't resolve disputes among yourself, he says, what's going to happen in the next age when you're put in positions of responsibility and authority if you can't even handle it here with each other? So the implication is, we're going to be in positions of responsibility in the age to come. And I believe when you've heard me talk about not just whether you're in Christ, but how you walk your walk out with Him is affecting not just where you live in eternity, but what you do, because we're determining our faithfulness to Him here. And if you prove your faithfulness to Him here, He can trust you with something in that age. And so I'm just referring to that because that again confirms that there is an age to come in which we're in a very different position, very different place of responsibility, and the writer here is reminding them of that. All right. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have, have partaken of flesh and blood, this is, this is, we have flesh and blood. He himself, this is Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He shared in flesh and blood like we were. Wow. That through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Whoa, is there a lot in there. God created the earth. He created man in His image. Set Him up to be the ruler of the earth. We've talked about that before. Satan comes in to destroy that. And the way he comes in to destroy that was to convince that man and woman to disobey God's commandment and to take things into their own hands. And the moment they did that, Satan now becomes the God of this world. They surrendered it to him. And that's why he's, that's why we've got floods and all these so-called quote-unquote acts of God. They're not acts of God. They're the acts of the God of this earth, which is Satan for this time being. But when you come to Christ, he came as the second Adam. And he came to restore what God had created in the beginning. And so when you come to Christ, the Bible says you change kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 says you are transferred out of the domain of darkness. That's Satan's authority. And transferred over into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You change families, you change kingdoms when you came to Christ. That's why Satan was lord over your life before you came to Christ. Once you come to Christ, Jesus is now Lord over your life. You are never at a place where some spiritual being is not Lord over you. you. You can't be independent. And if you think you are, I can tell you who's Lord over you. The deceiver. You're being under someone's lordship. Either Satan's lordship or Christ's lordship, but you're never going to be in a place where you're your own Lord and Master. Because if you think you're there, you're deceived, which means you're under the, in the kingdom of darkness and deception still. 
Now, you may be in the kingdom of God looking back into that, trying to get back in there, but you don't want to drift over there. And so Jesus came to win that back. And when you come to Christ and are joined to Him, you're taken out of that kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son, and you belong in that kingdom, and you're part of that kingdom of light. But we're living in the world that's ruled by the Lord of darkness. Because we're here on an assignment to bring other people into that kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth. All right. So Jesus, therefore, to become that second Adam, had to take on flesh so that he could become one of us. And he came so that he could taste death for everybody, for our sins. We've talked about that before. He died for your sin and my sin to pay the price for it. And that's the message of the gospel, or part of the message of the gospel. But he had to take on flesh to do that, to become one of us and die in our place. Why? So that he might destroy the devil. Well, the devil's still out there. I thought it said he might destroy him. He destroyed his power over you when you come into the kingdom of God. Satan no longer has dominion over you. That's why Romans 6 says, sin no longer has dominion over you. He said, but sure feels like it does. That's because you're going by your feelings and not by the word of God. And that's also because we spend too much of our time in the flesh and not enough time in the spirit. We sow too much to the flesh and not enough to the spirit. So we reap whatever we're sowing. So we sow to the flesh, we reap of the flesh. And when you reap of the flesh, the flesh has dominion over you, even though Christ broke its power. It's up to you or me whether it has dominion over us, because he broke its power over us. Romans chapter 6, sin no longer has dominion or authority over you. That means we don't have to sin. We don't have to sin. Sin no longer has, isn't that good news? Not many of you are excited about that. <laughs> Sin no longer has... That's good news. Sin no longer has... It doesn't say you've got to be perfect. But you don't have to be controlled by it. Satan does not have authority over you as a Christian because you're not in his kingdom. And the only way he can get authority in your life is for you to give it to him. Just the way they did back in the garden in the beginning. He, does, he hasn't changed his tactics He hasn't changed his goal. He tries to do the same thing with you and me that he did back then. All right, let's move on. We're headed somewhere with this, so. Look at verse 15. And to release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The whole, the the Bible tells us in Romans that the power of sin is the fear of death. Why? The fear that I'm going to die knowing I don't measure up to what God requires. The fear that I'm going to stand before a God of holiness and righteousness knowing what I've done, knowing what I'm like. That creates panic to face that I've got to face God as I am. But Christ came to deliver us from that fear bondage that comes from fear 
by paying for your sin and giving you his righteousness so that we stand before a holy God in a robe of righteousness that Christ gave us, not our own. That's what Romans teaches us. And we'll be talking more about that this year. And so that breaks the power of that fear and that bondage. Under the law, you had to be perfect. You couldn't sin once. Because if you sinned once, you broke the law. And if you ever broke the law, it was broken. And if it was broken, you were lost eternally. So well, why would God give them a law that they knew ahead of time they couldn't keep? Because he gave them the law so they would know they couldn't keep it. Because there's something innate in our human flesh and pride since the original fall to think somehow we can do this ourselves. We can add something. I know God loves us. I know God's gracious and merciful. But I can, do, I can add a little bit to this. And so I'm going to try harder. And this is a great time of year to talk about this because next week people start making New Year's resolutions. You know, I need to take off some pounds, so I'm going to, in my own willpower, I'm going to decide I'm going to lose whatever, five pounds, ten pounds, whatever. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start reading my Bible the way I'm supposed to. I'm going to start being nice. I'm whatever it is, when you've looked back over this year and feel as if you've fallen short, we are in human instinct to say, all right, I'm going to at least the turn of the year means I can wipe my mistakes of 2014 out and I can start a new year with fresh determinations. About how long do they last? I won't ask for a show of hands on time, but we know they don't last long. Why? It proves that in our own flesh there's not enough strength. Well, Romans 8 teaches us. Because what the law could not do because it depended on our own flesh to do it. It depended on our own determination, our own faithfulness. What the law couldn't do because of the weakness of our flesh. God did for us. Sending His own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned our sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who walk not according, trusting not in the flesh, our own determination, but trusting in the work of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And this is critical to understand. As a Christian, because even though we had to have some understanding of it to get saved, then we begin to do what Paul talks at the Colossians about. If you began in the Spirit, how come you're trying to walk by the flesh now that you're saved? Having been saved by receiving a gift of grace, why are we now going to try to earn our standing before God by what we do? And this is what the Hebrews were being tempted to do. All right. And this is what they were drifting away from. They were drifting away from the grace of the salvation that they received and they were beginning to drift over into trusting in what they could do and how faithful they were in what they do. And don't get me wrong, faithfulness is important but it doesn't earn anything before God. It doesn't earn your standing before God. There's nothing you can do that can make you acceptable to God. 
And yet, in our human flesh, there's still that mm, to try to add something. Because it's very humiliating to realize how utterly corrupt we are in ourselves. It's humiliating to face the fact that in God's eyes, there's no goodness in us. In fact, the only goodness in you now came from Christ. You didn't receive your salvation, and now you've become good on your own. The goodness you have before God is Christ in you. Because you take Christ out of you, you're going to go back to exactly what you were before. Some of you know what that's, I'm talking about. So he, and that's, that's humbling. With all the years I've walked before him, and all the scriptures I know and have memorized and taught and all the messages, still the only goodness in me is him. I haven't just picked up by osmosis my own goodness because I've hung out with him long enough. See, Christ doesn't come in you as part of a self-improvement program and fill you with his spirit so that the Holy Spirit can help you make you into a better person. Because then there'll come a point when you don't need the Holy Spirit anymore because now you've got a handle on this. Thank you, God, for helping me. And that what happens is somewhere inside we almost resent we have to be helped. And our goal is to get to the place where we don't need God at all because now we're good enough because we've walked with Him long enough, we've learned what to do long enough that we can do this on our own. And this is what he's talking about. And it can be very subtle we start drifting away from that grace that we knew we needed when we got saved. And now we're beginning to learn some things. We're beginning to see some success in our walk with Christ. We're beginning to, to just by virtue of being with Him over a number of years, we begin to develop some confidence. But in whom? In Him? Or is my confidence in me? Okay. I'm going to put you back together before we're done. It may not be today, though. (laughs) Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation. That means satisfaction for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered being tempted. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, chapter 3, he begins to tell them what to do, what to consider, how to not drift away from what we're talking about. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, so he's talking to believers, consider, that means focus your eyes on, set as your goal, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one, Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch that he who builds the house has more honor than the house. So, we came from him. All things were made by him and through him and for him. So he is the creator of the house. The the image that the writer is using here of the church is a house now. 
And he says, whereas Moses was faithful as a leader in the house, he gets more honor because it's his house. Okay. Every house must be built by somebody, but he who built all things is God. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Now he gets into this discussion where it says, if the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he talking about here? In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. So I swore in their wrath they shall not enter my rest. What's he talking about there? He's talking about, in fact, let's turn back to Numbers 13. We may not finish this today, but that's okay. You can come back next week. The children of Israel were going back in time, back when the children of Israel, God's covenant people, were in bondage in Egypt. They were being used as slaves. To be a slave means they didn't control what they did. They had to do what their taskmasters told them to do. And in return for which they got meager supplies of food, leeks and onions and all that good stuff. But they had to work from sun up to sundown to build Pharaoh's cities, to build Pharaoh's pyramids. And after about several hundred years of the bondage itself, they cried out to God, You're a covenant God, where is your deliverance? And God sent a deliverer, Moses. And we're not going to take the time to go back and look at it, but when they cried out for God's deliverance, their deliverer was already 80 years in his preparation to be their deliverer. So God was ahead of them. I don't know about you, but that comforts me. When you finally wake up and, God, I need help in this area. God's not down, going to scratch his head and say, I wonder what I'm going to do for John. He already knew, the Bible says he knows what you need before you ask, and he's already preparing the answer. He's just waiting for you to ask. I believe there are a lot of things that we suffer through that God had the answer and the solution for us. He's just waiting for us to ask. You have not because you ask not. And we just try to, try to work it out ourselves, figure it out ourselves, keep bumping our head against that same rock over and over again and not humbling ourselves enough to just ask God, help me. I don't know what to do here. God already had the deliverance. He already had the answer. God's will was to take them out of that place of bondage and he had a special place prepared for them, a land that he called the promised land because it's a land he promised to them. It was a land he promised them was flowing with milk and honey, not leeks and onions and all the stuff that they had to, to, to get in, in Egypt, but a land flowing in it. Flowing means they didn't have to work hard to get it. It was kind of like the garden in the beginning. It took care of itself. A water came up in the morning, a dew, and it, 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 it watered the, the, the vegetation. And all they had to do was just watch it and eat of it, enjoy it. God had a land prepared for them, flowing in milk and honey, a promised land, a land of rest, a land of prospering, a land of blessing, a land of bounty. He had a place for them. But to go from Egypt to there, they had to go through a wilderness. Sometimes to go from your deliverance to your blessing, you've got to go through a time in between of waiting, of wilderness. The Bible tells us there was a short route that they could have gone by, just a, just a matter of a couple of weeks. And we're talking about 
somewhere between two and six million people. We don't know because the Bible only tells us there were 600,000 fighting men. So we have to extrapolate from that. There was probably at least two million people. God wants to get them from their place he's delivered them. Bondage, servitude, where they couldn't get free when they wanted to be free. And to take them to a place of not just freedom, but of rest and a blessing. But to get there, they had to go through this wilderness. And the Bible tells us that God couldn't take them by the short route because he knew his people. Because he knew on the short route they'd run into the Canaanites and they'd be panicked and they'd run back to Egypt again. So God had to take them by a different route down through the Sinai Peninsula. And he took them on a process that took them about a year. In the meantime, he brought them to Mount Sinai and gives them law through Moses. And that relates to us because the Bible tells us in two specific places and references it, I'm sure, in other places. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, and it says here, that that story is in the Bible as an example for us. So if God's taken the time to put all these details in the Old Testament story about Israel's deliverance and their process of getting into the promised land, it's because there's lessons that God has for us to learn from looking at what they did. And I don't know if you've realized this in life by now, but it's much easier to learn a lesson by looking at someone else's mistakes than having to go through and make your own. And all of us that are adults have probably had our parents tell us things that they learned the hard way, and we went out and did it ourselves anyway and had to learn it the hard way ourselves. And when you're a parent, you just want to, listen, just listen to me. I've been down that road before. I know that you've stick your finger in that light socket. You're going to have something you don't want to experience. Don't do it. And they go, yeah, you know. <clears throat> and these, this story is in the Bible as an example that God has for the church today. And he's saying here today, if you hear his voice, speaking through this example, don't harden your heart. Says God was angry with that generation. And that's what we're going to look at. We'll start to look at it today. Because when they come out of Egypt, and, they, and God, not only do they come out of Egypt, but once they get out of Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his army to destroy them. And they're now delivered out of Egypt, out of their bondage. God has supernaturally opened the Red Sea. They have walked across it, the Bible says, on dry land. And you get two million plus people to the other side, and now Pharaoh's army, who was held back by God's cloud and fire, now God releases them, and their enemy that they have no defense for is bearing down on them with the express purpose of destroying them because their firstborn were killed back in Egypt. So they're not even just doing this out of obedience to Pharaoh. And he, they're angry to kill these people. And they see their enemy coming down to destroy them and they're helpless. And all of a sudden, the sea comes in. And in one day, their enemy is destroyed before their eyes. You'd think they rejoiced. Well, they did. They threw a party. Miriam sings this wonderful song. The horse and riders thrown into the sea. And they get out there a couple days. Their canteens get dry. No water in the canteen. God, why did you bring us out here to die? It only took three days before they started complaining. 
And we're going to see as we go through this, God said ten times, ten times, you complained at me, and yet I did these miracles to deliver you. How does this affect us? Because you and I were in bondage to the world. Egypt represents the world. And the bondage of sin, of all kinds of things that hold us and control us, drugs, alcohol, <clears throat> pornography, whatever it may be, <clears throat> that holds us, <clears throat> excuse me, sin itself is the root of all those things. Self is the root of sin. Holds us and has control of it, and we could not get free. Knew we were in bondage, but could not get free. And somewhere along the line, God touched you and you cried out to Him, and He delivered you out of that bondage. Because He wants to take you into place of blessing and of rest and of peace. And we're somewhere in that journey. Somewhere in that journey. And the lesson that they learned in that journey, the Bible says, God's put those stories in the Bible because we need to learn the same lessons. Because if we don't learn these lessons, we'll drift away. Every time something went wrong, what came out of their mouth? We had it better in Egypt. Every time something didn't go the way they thought it ought to go, they said, let's get together, let's return back to Egypt. They're the ones that cried to get out of it, but they forgot what it was like in Egypt. They, all they could remember the leeks and the onions and the food. All they could remember was the Pharaoh provided food for them. They forgot what it cost them. The freedom, the peace, the joy. Somebody else controlled what they do. They had a master over them, but he was a taskmaster. When you come to Christ, you have a new master over you. But he's not a taskmaster. He's a shepherd who loves his sheep. It's different to have a master or be mastered. And so there's lessons in this that we need to learn. And the warning here is we need to learn these lessons because otherwise we'll drift away. We'll drift away from the heart of the gospel. And if we drift away from it, how can we tell other people about it? Because we lose touch with what it's really all about. We lose touch with what it's really all about. I think we're going to end here. And we're going to pick up next week with this story. We've set the stage for it. I'm not sharing this to scare us. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about whether you're going to lose your salvation or not. I'm just saying there's something we're warned to not drift away from. And isn't that good to have a God who warn us? To say, you need to be awake about something. Because in our normal routine, our human nature, going through the steps we normally go through, it's very easy to take certain things for granted and do the same things you've always done, but forget why you're doing it. And as you do that, you begin to drift away from the passion. You drift away from the... From, and some of us have never really experienced what this is all about. We've just received it by faith and never really enjoyed. See, God wants you to enjoy your salvation. He wants you to enjoy your salvation. 
It's called the gospel. You know what gospel means? Good news. That book in your lap is good news. And when was the last time you were just so excited about the gospel and the good news of it? When was the last time you just couldn't wait to pick your Bible up because you couldn't wait to read good news? Wow. I remember when I first got saved, I, I had to make myself put it down and go to work. I had to make myself put it down and go to bed. I was devouring it. Why? I'd never read good news like this before. I'd never read that somebody loved me like that before. I never read this before. I never had a, something that touched my heart the way that touched my heart before. It was the greatest thing I'd ever read. That somewhere over the process of time, we just get used to the good news. And it's no longer good news, it's just news. And then it's not news anymore, it's the Bible. It's Jesus. It's church. It's what we do because we do it. And that's good to have the habits that you do what you do because you do it because that's what keeps you from stop doing it when you're taking it for granted. Did you follow me there? Okay. It kind of went like this. There's some habits that are good. And going to church, reading your Bible, praying are good habits. But don't just do it out of habit. Don't just do it out of habit. It ought to be the most exciting thing in time of your day. It ought to be the most meaningful time of your day. And if it's not, then maybe we're drifting. We're taking it for granted. And what you know what revival is? Revival's not new people getting saved. Revival's when we get revived again. We get refreshed again. We come back to our first love. We come back, and the wonderful thing is, if you're drifting away, you can renew it. If your marriage is stale, you can renew it. I've seen incredibly horrible marriages restored and put back together again. Because with God, nothing's impossible. As long as you don't quit, I've seen what God can do. I've seen what God can do. I've seen God overcome obstacles in our marriage that I didn't think would be overcome, but I've watched Him do it because we refuse to quit on the commitment we made to each other and to trust the commitment He made to us. And revitalize it. Revitalize it. But it requires regular, daily renewal. And that's what we're going to look at. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to enter 2015, it's a time, and we have been, re-examining our hearts and our lives as to why we do what we do. We come now to re-examine our walk with you. We ask the Holy Spirit, who knows us better than we know ourselves, to search our hearts and to open our hearts to be honest with where we really are in our walk with you right now. Be truly honest with ourselves and honest before you Because we know, Father, you already know where we are. We're the ones that don't know where we are. Open our eyes to see. Not condemn, not discourage, but to just see where we are and what it is that you would call us back to. For some cases, Father, in perhaps most of our cases, we've drifted away to some degree. And we're hearing your voice today calling us because you do speak. You do speak. You do speak to your people. You spoke through the prophets of old. You speak to us through the word now. And you speak to us through your spirit, calling us back 
to our first love, calling us back to the grace and the peace and the joy that you promised us that's in Christ, calling us back to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to hear your voice. Help us to hear your voice and to trust you in Jesus' name.